Welcome to the Skeptic's Guide to Emergency Medicine. Meet them, greet them, treat them, and street them. Today's date is November 20th, 2023, and I am your skeptical host, Ken Milne. The title of today's podcast is Placebo Effect. Is it ethical to prescribe them open label? And our guest skeptic is Dr. Caitlin Jones, a postdoctoral research associate at Sydney University's Institute for Musculoskeletal Health. Her research evaluates the benefits and harms of treatment for musculoskeletal conditions with a particular interest in high-risk treatment options such as opioid medicines and spinal cord stimulators for pain. She has a goal to improve patient outcomes and reduce harm from inappropriate treatment. Oh, what an intro. I love this. Welcome to the SGM, Caitlin. Thank you very much for having me. Oh, well, you know, just doing your intro and finding out more and more about you, the excitement was just growing and growing without with each sentence, and especially that last part about improving patient outcomes, because it starts with patient care, and it ends with patient care, as, as for me as a clinician, but it's so great seeing a researcher also dedicated to patient care. Yeah, it's a good goal, I think. Yeah, yeah, pretty good goal. Well, we have a we have a an interesting back story. See what I did there, Caitlin? Backstory on how we met. So Dr. Sergey Motov and I did a structured critical appraisal of your OPAL trial. That was SGM 419. You were the lead author on that study, and you pointed out we missed some important details in our review and provided some additional information. The SGEM, we're always happy to hear from people and update our SGEM episodes based on comments. So thank you very much. But not everybody has been so receptive to your study and your feedback. Yeah. Well, look, thanks for choosing Opal to appraise on one of your podcasts. I think you both did a, a really good job of it. And it's not hard to miss one or two details in a long manuscript. So no need to worry about that. Um, we had a, a whole range of responses to OPAL when it was published. Um, if anyone doesn't know, it was an RCT of an opioid for acute nonspecific back pain, which found no effects beyond placebo and, in fact, worse pain outcomes in the long term. So while I knew that was going to be a surprising result, I wasn't expecting this small but loud group of furious people to show up. But but look, overall, we had mostly, you know, positive, interested responses and, and some with opinions that the trial didn't reflect their clinical practice, maybe because of the regimen and the type of opioid we used, or perhaps the, the patient group we looked at because we excluded serious spinal pathology, that that didn't reflect the patients they see. Um, so that's a completely reasonable position. But there was this other other group that were just furious that we would even suggest that an opioid doesn't work. Um, and this whole study was, you know, corrupt and, and evil. So I don't think there's anything I can say to change the minds of those people. But when I do see just a genuine misunderstanding or, or that someone's missed some details, I, I feel obliged to, to jump in and offer the information that was missed because everyone's free to make up their own mind about how they will or won't apply the findings of Opal into their practice. But to do that fairly, they just have to have all the details. Well, welcome to the world of social media. Yeah. You know, I, there was a big controversy a couple of years ago, I think, where somebody posted, you know, two plus two equals five or something, or two plus two equals four, fight me on it, or whatever it was to start <laughs> the fire. And boy, it was, you know, like, so yeah, welcome to social media. But 
you know, you took our tagline serious when we say, be skeptical of anything we say, even if you heard it from us. And so you were skeptical, you had some more details. And we are always humble enough to admit if we've missed something or misunderstood something and correct it and update it quickly. And so, uh, no, we really appreciate that. But after our exchange, I went, geez, I, you know, this person is really kind of publishing interesting stuff. And and our exchange online was so good. I, I want to find out more about Caitlin. And so I looked you up. And one of, one of the publications that you had your name on really caught my eye. And it was very thought-provoking. It looked at open-label placebos being used in clinical trials. Now, just so the listeners know which paper I'm talking about, the title was called, quote, Time to Reflect on Open-Label Placebos and Their Value for Clinical Practice. What got you so interested in this topic? So a lot of my research compares treatments for musculoskeletal pain to placebos to establish efficacy, which is just the bare bones of how well something works. And in my field, unfortunately, we often find that some of the treatments we've used for decades in clinical practice don't show effects above that of a placebo when someone tests them properly. And there's been lots of talk about this. You know, does that mean that our treatments aren't as good as we hoped they were? Or is it possible that giving people a placebo elicits such a powerful response that it's drowning out the effects of these genuine treatments? So there's been increased chatter about placebos and and whether we can be part of me giving them to patients as part of clinical care and there's been a few big editorials written um, and an increase in publications on the topic so it's this idea that's clearly been gaining a lot of traction in the clinical and research community so a lot of my work is testing treatments that we've used for a long time without proper testing and when we finally get around to testing them we find we were doing more harm than good all along. And using open-label placebos as a clinical treatment is a new enough concept that there's still time to intervene and advocate for some thorough testing before these become commonplace in clinical care. A lot of us don't want to see this be another thing, you know, in 50 years' time where we look back and and realise that we were on a wild goose chase all along. So this piece was like an editorial sort of opinion-style piece, just cautioning people to take a beat before we proceed with this. Well, a lot of great stuff in what you just said and in your actual document. So I, I encourage people to read the article. But let's go through some of those key points, just so you know, like you said, we don't have to wait 50 years. And I'm often saying that, you know, it can take over 10 years for high quality, clinically relevant information to reach the patient's bedside. And the actual number from the paper was 17 years for 14% of that information. And there's a quote from a neurologist about 50 years getting the right idea in and 100 years getting the wrong idea out or vice versa. So let's not take decades. Let's use the power of social media to see if we can cut that knowledge translation window down to less than 10 years. So anybody who listens to the show is probably familiar with the placebo effect. We've discussed it before, but can you give a brief definition to frame our conversation? Sure. So the placebo effect is essentially the positive effect seen on outcomes that stems from positive expectations around receiving a treatment rather than because of the treatment itself, because by definition, it's it's nothing. It's an inert treatment, a placebo. 
Um, But placebo in a research context is the gold standard comparison in efficacy trials that can provide an estimate of the treatment effect of the intervention we're interested in by filtering out all those biases and contextual effects that aren't directly caused by that treatment of interest. So we're left with an estimate of the direct effects of the treatment itself with the noise cancelled out. And then along came some research which caused some excitement. They reported that you could elicit a placebo effect without deceiving the patient, i.e. telling them, hey, you know what? We're giving you a placebo. Yeah, it was long thought that the the part of the placebo that worked was the fact that the person believed they were receiving a legitimate treatment. But then some interesting research came out that showed that even when you tell people they are getting a placebo, it still seemed to cause this positive effect on outcomes. And that was really appealing to a lot of people who believed in the power of the placebo and felt that the main barrier to using them was that unethical element of deception. And if suddenly no deception is necessary, it just opened the gate to the idea that we could use them ethically in practice. So I love talking nerdy with people. So let's look at the methods section because that's my favorite section of any publication. So what are the fundamental misunderstandings of an open label placebo and research methodology? So there's a couple of fundamental misunderstandings and and possibly the most important one is this mismeasurement and therefore overinflation of the placebo effect because it's often confused for the placebo response. And those two words don't sound too different and they're often used interchangeably even in research articles, but in the placebo field, they actually have very distinct meanings. So the placebo response is all the change seen in a group that received a placebo treatment from beginning to end of a study. So that includes the placebo effect if it's there, but it also includes natural history, recovery, statistical things like regression to the mean and the effects of repeated measurements. It includes everything all mixed in there to one. Whereas the placebo effect is the effect specifically because of having a placebo and it can only really be measured when you compare a group that received a placebo to a group that received no treatment, and then the difference between those two groups can more reliably be attributed to the placebo itself. So that's the placebo effect versus the placebo response. But in a lot of research, the placebo response, which is much bigger, is reported as the placebo effect. And I think that's fed this myth that the placebo effect is really strong and powerful because they're just mistaking all these other effects um, and wrapping them up and presenting them as if they're just the placebo effect. In in some of the trials that that don't make that mistake, so they do measure a placebo arm versus a no treatment arm, they find much smaller effect sizes compared to the placebo response and, and maybe even getting to the realm of not clinically meaningful. But even in those studies that don't make that mistake, there's still a lack of blinding in those trials because To give someone an open-label placebo, by definition, you have to tell them they're getting an open-label placebo. So it's impossible to blind it. The the group getting the placebo knows they're getting it, and the group getting nothing, they know they're getting nothing. You can't hide that from them. So that introduces all the biases that come from a lack of blinding. But it's even more complicated in, in this scenario because provision of an open-label placebo often comes with a positive preamble as well. When you give someone the placebo, you tell them why you're giving it, because this is a, a 
a powerful phenomenon and we've seen in research that it, it will probably make you feel better even though there's there's no active ingredients in this treatment that I'm giving you. So they get that positive preamble that over-inflates the expectations of the people receiving the open-label placebo, but it also deflates the expectations of the people in the control group because now they know that there's this powerful, interesting treatment that they're not getting. So you've got sort of the bias in either direction in that sense as well. And the third problem with a lot of the placebo research out there is sampling bias. And this isn't unique to placebo research, but it does cause a particular issue in this setting because a lot of these research studies are done on healthy research recruits. So researchers advertise the trial and then the, the participants come to them. And I've got a colleague that remembers seeing flyers up around her university advertising for a study of a mind-body treatment, you know, the interesting new phenomenon. If you're interested in mind-body treatments, come and join our study. So people self-select into these studies. And you can imagine that those people are a particular type of person that have a, a pre-existing belief or at least just an interest in something like a mind-body treatment. So it's not necessarily representing the people who are likely to be offered an open-label placebo in clinical practice, who are probably more so the people that have these difficult-to-diagnose, difficult-to-treat, long-term conditions with vague symptoms, who often have a long history of seeking care, not getting many answers, even maybe feeling like they're not being believed or there's a suspicion around the things they're reporting because it is so hard to diagnose and treat. And they're, they're not the kind of people that are responding to these posters saying, would you like to join a study about mind-body treatment? So a lot of the studies that, that show, look, see, it works and people don't mind taking them. They're happy to receive a placebo. They're, they're actually looking at a different population to the ones that we would see a, a maybe more value in using a placebo for in clinical practice. So a real potential selection bias of the cohort, I think we see this with um, acupuncture studies that are, are done and people that are recruited into acupuncture studies usually have a predisposition. Uh, they're aware of acupuncture, they've had acupuncture, and let's say they believe that it will work, right? And so uh, if, they are, if they are in the no treatment group or, um, or the trial is unmasked, uh, it can really confuse things and make things difficult to interpret. You've also reminded me that we, we need to be more careful about, you know, teasing out the difference between a placebo effect and placebo response. And I'm going to have to reflect on some of my language uh, during some of the podcasts, just to be as accurate as possible, because I can see how I could have in the past made a mistake of saying, oh, the placebo effect versus the placebo response. So really excellent. It's very easy to do because, yeah, the, the, the words do sound like they can be used interchangeably, but just the nitty gritty details means they can't. So what you're saying, Caitlin, is you're not being pedantic about this. This is actually has important things in research methodology, interpreting the research. I love it. Exactly. Yeah. Big consequences based on a little mistake of using the wrong word. Yeah. One word. All right. So I understand there were some experts that opine that open label placebos should be part of clinical trials. And you made some references in your article that you wrote. Yeah. Some are calling for open label placebos to be used in clinical care. But I think those people are overlooking some of the limitations of the current research and they're taking these reported effect sizes 
at face value and they're also assuming that there's no harm to be done because it it's we're not it's nothing treatment it's a placebo so why not use them i mean that sounds better than even a lot of the genuine treatments we use all the time if there's even at least moderate effects and no risk of harm why not use them yeah and i would push back on on those individuals saying there is always potential for harm because every intervention even if it's a placebo has a potential benefit and a potential harm and that potential harm may be iatrogenic it may not be an inert placebo. It may do to um, uh, not getting uh, a potential effective treatment, those types of things. So there are always, and I don't like to use the you know absolutes, but um, we should be looking for the potential benefits, but also the potential harms, even in those types of trials. There are even some clinicians who report on surveys as to prescribing placebos to their patients. Yeah, so there's been surveys done over the last decade or two, mostly in primary care settings in both Australia and the United States as well, that have found many doctors report prescribing a placebo at least once. And in one of those surveys, it was 80% of doctors. So a lot of doctors are willing to admit that they've used something that they knew wouldn't likely be effective, but they did it anyway to elicit the placebo effect. So it's not necessarily prescribing a sugar pill. It could be, you know, it could be, I don't know, prescribing a moisturizing cream or or something that they, they know doesn't have an active ingredient that is going to be useful, but it's to elicit the placebo response, the effect. Sorry, there you go. See, even I make the mistake. Oh, thank you for making me feel better about that. Oh, you're, you're great. One of the problems here or the complicating factors here is that the American Medical Association's Code of Ethics warns against using placebos to mollify a difficult patient. I'm using air quotes as I say that. On a podcast. Yes. (laughs) But they say it can be considered if the patient is aware that it's a placebo and can therefore provide informed consent. So I think that wording essentially gives clinicians permission to use open label placebos and is possibly responsible for the rise in people using them in clinical care. Well, as a clinician for almost 30 years now, I can say there 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 is a a desire, a feeling, a want to be doing something, right? And that patients came in and that, you know, you can't leave, you can't have them leave without doing something. So do you think that this open label placebos are the answer for those those patients? And I don't like to use the term difficult or challenging patients. They're patients and they have a backstory and it takes place in a context. So do you think that open label placebos are the answer? Definitely not yet and possibly not ever unless we find a way to be certain that the benefits outweigh the risk of causing harm. So I believe this is true even for patients with conditions where there's no effective treatment. I think we'd all be on the same page that when there is an effective safe treatment, it wouldn't be ethical to forego that in favour of a placebo. But where the where it's a bit more murky is for those conditions where there isn't an obvious treatment. It's a tough ask to ask clinicians to do nothing. Like you say, there is enormous pressure on clinicians to do something and they want to reach for a treatment where the risks are perceived to be low so that at very least they're not doing any harm. And this is often perceived to be the case with open label placebos, although we don't actually know that yet. And I suspect there is substantial risk of stigmatizing and alienating patients. 
Well, we've mentioned this whole concept of intervention bias many times on the SGEM. As someone who practices in the emergency department, we want to do something. We're action-oriented people. We, we want to provide something of comfort to ameliorate pain and suffering, to do something. And, and my mentor, who is a legend of emergency medicine, Dr. Jerome Hoffman, would frequently say, don't just do something, stand there. And in fact, that is a choice by it is a treatment by deciding explicitly not to do something. And in fact, that is the title of one of my favorite articles, also published by an Australian, I might add. Don't just do something, stand there. The value and art of deliberate clinical inertia. It's true in so many clinical settings, but I imagine it's especially true in the emergency department people didn't wait 14 hours to be seen and then receive no treatment, right? So the pressure must be huge. Oh, yeah. No, don't wait that long and say, so you're not going to do anything. And it's like, oh. So um, let's look at the research, though, because let's get back to the primary research. I always like to go back to the source material. And let's look at open-label placebo. What's the quality of the research in this area? So like much of the evidence from the closed deceptive placebo research as well, research into open-label placebos uh, lacks unbiased, convincing control groups, and therefore we really don't have high-quality evidence showing that they're effective at all. Studies of open-label placebos often don't control properly for that positive preamble that we talked about that's delivered along with the pill. So it's really hard to know is that, you know, whatever effects we're seeing, is that because of the positive expectation set up by that talk and the connection with the clinician and that tender loving care then they received, or is it the starch pill they swallowed afterwards? Um, The current trials don't answer that question. But perhaps an even more pressing issue is that open-label placebo research um, hasn't involved patients and consumers as co-designers in this program of research. And this is becoming standard. More and more funders are calling for patients' contributions to shift from just being the passive recipients of care in in research and clinical trials to being active co-designers of research programs. And until we know whether this line of inquiry is of interest and would be an acceptable treatment to the people likely to receive it one day anyway, there's not much point on going forward. I'm really excited to hear that there is a push to involve patients more and more at the fundamental stage, at the development stage, at getting the research questions asked and how the methodology will go. Because that fits into my philosophy and approach to medicine, and that's evidence-based medicine. And people have heard me say this multiple times. There is that Venn diagram that describes the three pillars of evidence-based medicine. The first pillar being, and not in any particular order, of course, but there is the literature, and the literature informs and guides clinicians' care, but it shouldn't dictate our care. And then you have to consider your own clinical judgment. That's the second pillar. Where are you practicing? How are you practicing? How did you interpret the literature? But also your clinical experience, that clinical gestalt. Oh, I love that word. Clinical gestalt comes into practice. And then the third, and let's maybe argue one of the most important things, is to consider the patient's values and preferences. What do they care about? What do they want? And 
you know, I see this happening in clinical practice guidelines. Will there, ha- will there, ha- where they will have a patient advocate or patients themselves involved in helping write the guidelines, but that is so far down from the actual process of generating the primary research. Why not get patients involved in the beginning? And so ask them from the very start, what matters to you? What questions should we be asking? How should we figure this out? Oh, you've got me excited. All right. Well, back to the show. Dr. Stephen Novella, a neurologist who has actually been on the SGEM for one of our extra episodes uh, when they published their book, From the Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. See where I got my name? Mm-hmm. Partly due to a tip of the hat to the SGU. Um, he was on the Skeptic's Guide and he writes for science based medicine. And he has argued that it would be unethical to use placebos. Do you think it's unethical to offer a patient a placebo when you have informed them that it will be a placebo? I think in the context of conditions where there's no known effective treatment, proposing an open-label placebo as an option in the shared decision-making process is at very best a gamble with unfavorable odds because we don't yet know whether the patient would likely find this stigmatizing and offensive. If it's for a patient where the clinician feels they have a good relationship and the person has shown interest in this sort of thing before, then maybe the odds are more favorable, but you're still risking destroying that trusting relationship if the suggestion offends them. And also to offer it honestly, a clinician would have to be honest about the limitations of the research. It isn't ethical to present a placebo as a powerful and proven remedy because it isn't. It At best, it's still a question mark. And then if you're being honest that we don't really know if this is going to work, is that destroying the the concept of encouraging these positive expectations with which elicits the positive treatment effect? So I think in practice, it's actually impossible to honestly deliver an open label placebo. Hmm. So do you think there is any utility in conducting properly designed studies that have involved patient input to look at this issue? It's a tough one. So I've seen a survey where research recruits said in the majority that if it works, then they would be happy to take an open label placebo. But we don't really know if it works yet. So how can we ask patients if they're willing to take it when whether it works or not is probably the linchpin in that decision? You end up in this circular reasoning. I think the first step would be to ask the people who are most likely to receive an open-label placebo in practice, and that's the people with the hard-to-diagnose and hard-to-treat conditions like chronic pain or chronic fatigue, whether this is an avenue that they would like to see taxpayer dollars spent on and whether it's something they would even consider using if the research showed that it worked. And only if the answer to that question is yes, is it worth investing time and money into this puzzle that is how you would design an unbiased trial. Yeah, because the funding would have to come from somewhere. And I, I can't see, is is there something called big placebo out there waiting to make a lot of money on sugar pills? They actually already exist um, because they get to bypass the medical regulations because it's nothing, right? So there are already companies that sell placebo pills online and they advertise direct to consumer as well. So people can get online and buy themselves some placebo pills, um, which I think is a shame. It's definitely leading people down the garden path. 
So, Caitlin, what was the goal that you had when you wanted to publish this article? What were, what were you hoping to achieve? Our hope was that this article was going to give clinicians and researchers pause to critically reflect on whether open-label placebos should be used in clinical care. If I had a time machine, and I think a lot of other people feel this way too, I would go back in time and kick and scream about quite a few treatments that we've adopted into clinical care without proper scrutiny first. But for open-label placebos, we still have time to do this right. So that was the motivation behind writing this article. We still have time. We can still make a difference. I love it. Your optimism is so contagious. I really like it. Because I I have to tell you, once something gets established in practice, it is so hard to go back and say, really? Really? And, And often, if you go back and look at the primary literature on some treatment modality, we're often standing on pillars of salt and sand. The foundational evidence is weak at best, and yet it's adopted its, its quote, standard of care or broadly accepted. And so to undo that, to unring the bell, as they say, is very, very challenging. So I'm interested in hearing what you think, because clearly you're an expert at the area, you've done your PhD, you're, you're doing your postdoc, you know, what are your conclusions? So I think it's ethically questionable at best to encourage positive treatment expectations from a treatment that lacks solid evidence of efficacy, like is the case with open-label placebos. But I think the good news is that we can use these broader concepts of an open-label placebo in practice without actually giving anyone a sham treatment or a sugar pill. I've got a helicopter flying by. I was going to say, what, what is that? You've got a helicopter landing. You're, you're working at the hospital right now. No, I'm, I'm working at my house, which we're building. So I'm sitting in my storage shed, as you can see, all my furniture stacked up. Oh, PhDs make so much money and postdoctorates are paid so well in Australia that you're, you're building a helicopter pad out back. Is that, is that what you're telling me? I wish that was the case. But no, I'm sitting in a storage shed with all my furniture and I need to have the door open or the Wi-Fi can't get in so I couldn't block out the sound. So I am sorry. Sorry for the bird noises you would have heard earlier. I love it. No, no. At a helic, I was like, what is that? Thump, 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 thump. But you had a helicopter just going by your place? Yes. Yeah. I'd say they're checking for bushfires. It's that season at the moment in Australia and it's been really hot and dry and windy. So there's often helicopters flying around my area. I'm outside of the city. I'm sort of in the bush. So they're often scouting, looking out for fires. So sorry for that interruption. Okay. Back to the show. (laughs) So I was saying, um, I think it's ethically questionable at best to encourage positive treatment expectations from a treatment when we don't actually have evidence that 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 you should have positive expectations about it. But what I hope clinicians take away from this is that we can still use those broader concepts of an open-label placebo, the things we're trying to elicit by giving a placebo pill. We can still harness them and, and use them without actually giving anyone a starch pill to swallow. So we can encourage positive treatment expectations when appropriate. So in my field, in musculoskeletal pain, the prognosis usually is good. You can honestly tell someone that they can expect to feel better over time, regardless of what they do. Um, We can also capitalize on the positive effects of a warm and trusting patient-provider relationship by being good listeners, showing our genuine concern and respect for that person and their story. Yeah, that last part is so very important. 
we need to listen more. I'm sure I shouldn't put it on others. I need to learn to listen more as well. I hope I'm showing genuine concern to the patients that I get the privilege of interacting with, but uh, listening more is, is good advice. Any final thoughts before we end? I'm interested to hear the ED clinician's perspective, whether you use placebos in clinical practice, if you're willing to admit it, and do you think it's ethical or not? Do you have thoughts, Ken? I do. I am at a teaching site and we have residents, trainees, and often they'll pick to do a treatment um, intervention that's an injectable form of an, an analgesic. So uh, it's a non-steroidal analgesic. Do you have Ketorolac in Australia? Yes. Ketorolac, yeah. And so um, it's the parenteral available non-steroidal anti-inflammatory. And I'll see a lot of the residents say, well, we, we should give them an injection, an intramuscular injection. When this person is perfectly capable of swallowing pills, they don't have a digestive issue. And, and I think they're trying to leverage the placebo effect that the clinician is taking them seriously, taking their pain seriously, and wanting them to give them a needle. Oh, and that, that ketorolac has a little bit of a bite to it if you've ever had an injection. And it's much different than swallowing a pill. I could have swallowed a pill at home. I waited 14 hours, and all you're going to do is ask me to take a couple of ibuprofens. But the doctor, you know, they were really concerned about my pain, and they gave me an injection for my pain. And I'm concerned that there's a placebo effect. Did I get that right? Response, mm -hmm. a placebo mm -hmm. effect or response by, by giving them an injection. Because obviously, we do have research that the, the more expensive, the more caustic, the more invasive, the more painful, uh, we can leverage that placebo effect. We can make it greater by the intervention being um, more invasive. And so I, I think I'd call that a placebo response. It could be a whole number of things, including the placebo effect. Yeah, yeah. And again, it's taking place in a clinical context where the clinician is deciding on something more invasive, more uh, to, to address their pain. And so, but I don't think that there's any good evidence that taking a pill of an NSAID versus injecting the NSAID in a patient with musculoskeletal pain um, has a difference with regards to efficacy. So yeah, why don't we look into that? We'll maybe do a, we'll do a, a poll for the site formerly known as Twitter. It sounds like the Prince, the artist formerly known as Prince. For the site formerly known as Twitter or X now, maybe we'll put up a placebo question about, do you use placebos in your practice as an emergency physician or emergency clinician? Because that involves nurse practitioners and physician assistants paramedics, uh, you know, other healthcare professionals. And we can put that out on a Twitter poll. Maybe we'll get you some data. That'd be great. Thank you. Well, the SGM will be back next episode doing a structured critical appraisal of a recent publication, trying to cut that knowledge translation window down from over 10 years to less than one year using the power of social media. So patients get the best care based on the best evidence, because that's our ultimate goal. Caitlin. This has been wonderful. I'm so glad we got to meet through this uh, Opal trial. And you're, and boy, have you received a ton of attention for that paper. You were telling me earlier that this was part of your uh, PhD and uh, your, one of your first publications, correct? And, and wow, you knocked it out of the park when it comes to knowledge translation and getting a lot of people to read your trial. 
Yeah, I think a lot of people have read it, which is a fantastic first step, and I really am thrilled. Um, but I guess it remains to be seen whether it gets translated into clinical practice and prescription of opioids or non-specific back and neck pain actually does decrease. I, I hope it does, but only time will tell. Well, there's only one last task, and it is a task, but hopefully you find it a, a fun task, and that is to read the SGEM tagline. And I, I encourage my guest skeptics to read it in their best accent. Now, of course, you don't have an accent. You speak Australian, <laughs> but we do have some Americans that listen. So I'll translate this for the American audience because they're probably confused right now because we kept on saying musculoskeletal, and they say musculoskeletal in the U.S., not musculoskeletal. So, you know, I often have to translate for them. So can you give the SJAM tagline in your best Australian accent? I certainly can because I'm from Australia, mate. Remember to be sceptical of anything you learn, even if you heard it on the Skeptic's Guide to Emergency Medicine. Talk to everyone next time. Look,